Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we look at the intersection of business and art in the TV and streaming universe, and what does it mean for viewers like you. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by my hard-boiled detective compatriot, Diane Nora. Salut, Diane. Uh, buongiorno. Oh no, got the wrong country. So I'm close. Out. <laughs> uh, we are uh, taking a little uh, travel log this week. We are in week two of our winter detective mystery extravaganza. Real great branding I've got going there. Uh, last week, we reviewed Hulu's Death and Other Details. This week, we are uh, traipsing off to France for Monstre Spade. It is a Sam Spade uh, period piece, a hard-boiled detective novel come to the screen on AMC+. Plus. It is a co-production with Canel Plus, so if you are an international listener, well, uh, uh, again, bonjour, hello, uh, allo, uh, thank you for listening. I guess you can watch it on Canal Plus. Sorry about our French. I, I won't apologize. I took it so long. <laughs> I know how bad I am. Uh, but... This show, interesting. It is a uh, French-American uh, co-production. Uh, we see these sometimes because a lot of uh, streamers, uh, they need to have a certain amount of in-country uh, programming from certain countries like France. They France also subsidizes some productions. So it's interesting to see a mix of American mentality and French mentality, uh, both English and French spoken in this show. And it stars none other than Clive Owen, a, a very talented um, actor, I would say. Very talented. If someone had to step into the shoes of Humphrey Bogart, I think that this is one of the few people I would actually trust with that charge. Yeah, and seriously, what a way to pitch pitch the show to the actor. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty small production on AMC+. Plus. You'll be playing Humphrey Bogart's character. Hey. Sounds good to me, but is it good to watch? You'll find out later this episode, because first, we have to get to some follow-up. And we're going to begin our follow-up with one of our uh, favorite topics, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I have some good news for fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You can stream one of my favorite recent Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, The Marvels, on Disney Plus starting this coming week on February 7th. Uh, it did not do well in the movie theaters, did it, Diane? No, but we liked it. We did. Is the ending good? No, not really. But when has there been a Marvel movie since the Avengers saga that had a good ending? I really challenge you. Write me, podcast at streamagain.com. Try to make the argument that Quantum Mania or Multiverse of Madness or that Thor one, make, make the argument that any of those landed the plane at the end. Uh, the Marvels had the merciful uh, benefit of being short and sweet and having some awesome action sequences and some really funny actors. I would tell you, now that it is free, in air quotes, because you're already paying for Disney+, Plus, aren't you? Why not go watch it? Yeah, not a bad way to spend a couple hours. No, uh, not a bad way to spend a couple hours, and not a bad way for Disney to have spent $320 million, because that is reportedly the combined production and marketing budget for the Marvels, which made a total of just over $200 million globally. Uh... But we loved it! It's okay! Yeah, I mean, I think that it was also a victim of the strike, and the decline in Marvel at that time. I don't think that 
it's at all a reflection of the quality of the show. Not a show. Of the quality <laughs> of the movie. Yeah, but speaking of shows, if you're going to watch The Marvels on Disney+, Plus and you have not watched Ms. Marvel, I think these go great together. And I hope they do a good job of feeding those two uh, properties into each other now that they're both on the streaming service. Uh, again, I was delighted by most of Ms. Marvel, and the tie-in between Ms. Marvel and the Marvels was really enjoyable and pretty successful, with just the one problem that they were like two years apart from each other for baffling uh, Marvel mismanagement reasons. Agreed, and I think both are at their strongest when they're having a bit of fun, and I think that's a good reminder for where the MCU could go. When it takes itself super seriously, it's a slippery slope. Well, speaking of where the MCU might go, and speaking of shows where they had a little fun, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. This another Marvel show that uh, Diane and I reviewed way back in the day. It uh, starred Tatiana Maslany as the uh, titular She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Again, I, I really took issue with how they ended the season of this show. Once again, Marvel mm -hmm. botching endings. But the majority of it, the first like nine episodes, fantastic. I had so much fun watching She-Hulk Attorney at Law. And I guess I'll just have to savor those memories. Because in an interview, uh, Tatiana Maslany recently revealed that she has zero indication they will ever make any more episodes of She-Hulk. It really is too bad because I I think that we discussed that it would be great to just see She-Hulk doing some legal work. <laughs> just make it an episodic show. Make it a procedural. What is wrong with you people? Besides the fact well, that it costs a bajillion dollars to do the CGI for Tatiana Maslany. It costs a lot of money. And also, once they started writing the courtroom sequences, the writer's room did admit that they didn't know how to write the courtroom sequences. No. There's so many unforced errors in the production of that show. And it still came out pretty well. Imagine if they'd done, if they just addressed these issues. Episodes two through seven are fun. So good. So good. Uh, the show occasionally, according to reports uh, in Variety, cost over uh, $25 million per episode, which is absurd. It is like, you can't make a TV show that costs that much money per episode. It, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And also, I think that uh, they might need the labor in other places in terms of uh, CGI. Yeah, the VFX work. That's a, that's a limited right. pool of resource, let alone the money, the people and the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's tough. It, it, it pains me because the promise there, and when it worked, the promise was fulfilled, was amazing. But boy, that is a, a sad note for the MCU uh, Disney Plus slate. It is. Could they bring it back with just her in a big old costume and some stilts? It'd be so fun. <laughs> Lean in. <laughs> Do a season where she loses her Hulk powers. That's cheaper watch... to shoot. I'd watch mm -hmm. it. 100%. Watch we're both we're both dying to watch it so much. We're just screaming, screaming into our microphones. Anything. Give us more Tatiana Maslany, Disney. What are you doing? Or just, you know, a, a new show with Tatiana. Sure. I'll take it. But also, sure. I would like a lot of the rest of that cast. That was such a good cast. It was such a good cast. Uh, well, speaking of uh, really good actors in the, the Disney uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, Vincent D'Onofrio. Back in the MCU, he was Kingpin on the Netflix Daredevil show, and then he was Kingpin in the Hawkeye Disney Plus show, and has now been fully 
brought into the MCU as Kingpin on Echo, which we reviewed earlier in January. Uh, he is now a mainstay, especially in the void uh, post Jonathan Majors. We haven't even really talked about Disney dropping Jonathan Majors after the verdict in his trial, but th they have not told us what they're going to do about that yet. They've made no indication how that's going to be handled, but it has created this interesting villain void, and especially on the public-facing side, because even before uh, dropping Jonathan Majors, they absolutely were not trotting him out for publicity. And so suddenly you have Vincent D'Onofrio running around saying all sorts of interesting and probably unauthorized things about what he wants to do in the MCU. And one of them came out this past week. He would like uh, Fisk, that's uh, the name of Kingpin, his, his Mr. Fisk. Uh, he'd like to have his own Joker movie. And I love the idea of how would Disney do a Joker movie in the Disney style. And also, I would watch Vincent D'Onofrio chew the scenery for two hours in anything. I would too. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the Joker movie, uh, full disclosure. I really dislike it, but it made a whole lot of money. And the sequel has Lady Gaga, who I will always watch. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not totally giving up on that prospect. Uh, I think I'm kind of curious about how things will go with this Penguin series, which I know is DC. But to me, that might be a better model for how you could have something that centers a villain because, uh, and that's coming out on Max, I think this year. I would see that maybe as more of a way to go than something like uh, Joker, which is a rated R film. Yes, yes. We're, again, my, my, what tickled me about this was how would Disney do that? What would Disney's version of Joker look like? Would would they even tiptoe up to R? It definitely wouldn't be the hard R that Joker is. Would they do a light R-rated romp? You know, uh, Echo is TVMA. It's their first, you know, mature audience's TV show. It's not that mature. It's certainly, you know, violent, but it's not like Joker level of violence. Not even close. Not even close. Though he is genuinely scary. Yes, he is. I don't know, though, if it would help to learn more about him. I feel like he has kind of an air of mystery. And one thing that Marvel seems to do again and again is have something that's kind of working and be like, oh, let's just completely exploit this so it's everywhere and then you're sick of it. Uh huh. And maybe using an actor like D'Onofrio, who is such a big presence, and I love that about his work, somewhat sparingly might be um might be better but if anyone could do it it's him yeah and in the meantime just keep telling us what you're thinking vince i love <laughs> just like what's on vincent d'onofrio's mind this week and i think he does too so let's just keep that going yeah stay chatty <laughs> I'm wondering if he's got like a lot of missed calls from Kevin Feige's office going, stop, Vince, stop, stop, Vince, hello, Vince, pick up, v Vince, what are you saying? Joker, you can't say that about a Disney property. <laughs> All right, we're going to leave the MCU behind. I just had to get in my love of Granddaddy D'Onofrio there. I'm an old school Law & Order Criminal Intent fan, and I will watch anything he does every day for the rest of my life. Great actor. Great Law & Order spinoff.
But we are not going to get into the bleak reality of Law & Order this week, though boy, it's on my short list of coming episodes, Diane, I hate to tell you that. Instead, we're going to move on and talk about, oh, one of our other favorite streamers. Diane, you already uh, gave him a little name drop. It's Max. Yep. We love our friends at Warner Brothers Discovery and the Max app. And the Max app has uh, once again thrown us some very interesting business curveballs, as David Zaslav just loves to do. Uh, we've mentioned before that HBO has begun licensing out some of their older titles to Netflix. Uh, we mentioned this with Issa Rae's Insecure. Uh, I believe they're also doing it with Six Feet Under. Uh, it shows that ended but were HBO exclusives that you could only watch in the Max app. And they remain in the Max app, their HBO catalog titles, but now you can also stream them on Netflix. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe those shows have saturated their viewership on Max, and they, they, they have the numbers, they know better than any of us would, so maybe they do some math and they say, it dilutes the HBO brand a bit, but, but the HBO brand is strong enough to command good money from Netflix to license these titles. But now, now it's getting weird, Diane. Sex in the City is coming to Netflix? I, I okay, I, maybe, I, maybe that makes sense. Seems like you're giving away a lot now. Seems like we're tiptoeing up to, what if we put Game of Thrones on Netflix? And if we cross that bridge, I don't know what the business model of HBO is anymore. What's going on, guys? Yeah, uh, to borrow a parlance from Carrie Bradshaw, I couldn't help but wonder at <laughs> hearing this news, uh, what they're thinking. I did remember that uh, for a time, Sex and the City was uh, licensed on cable TV. So you could watch it, I think, on TBS or TNT at some point. Um, uh, it was an edited version, I think, for those of us who's parents wouldn't let us watch it on HBO. It was a real blessing at the time. But uh <laughs> that that seems like a there's something about Sex in the City that seems essential to the HBO brand in a way that Insecure does not, even though I love Insecure. Yeah, I I, I agree. It's one of the crown jewels. That's what really strikes me about it. Uh, and you you might have said that about some of the other shows they've licensed at their time, but Sex in the City has stood the test of time as like a brand identifier for HBO. And it is, even though they have syndicated it on basic cable in the past, it seems like a much different thing to license it to a competitor, a direct competitor. I agree. I would say the um, HBO drama, your first thought is The Sopranos, really? And HBO comedy, your first thought is Sex in the City. I mean, it it, it transformed what um, adult comedy was. So, you know, maybe they're hoping that this will drive viewers to the upcoming season of And Just Like That. That That is my, that is my assumption. And, uh, you know, that's returning for a third season this year. And... Uh, they might have some evidence or some hypothesis that the show would uh, pop if more people were digging Sex in the City nostalgia. And that right now they've kind of maxed out the amount of Sex in the City nostalgia they can ring out of the Max app audience. And so you turn to where where is the audience? Well, as we discussed last week, the new basic cable is the giant pool of people with a Netflix subscription who are just uh, unable to cancel it or willing to watch the ads to get the cheap version. This is the basic cableification of Netflix. 
And in that way, it does make some sense for Max. It just feels like we're we're crossing a, a threshold at some point of giving away too much, where I, maybe each one strategically makes sense, but when you add them all up, are you are you sure that giving all of these shows to your competitor is going to bring viewers back to you? I don't think that it will. I don't think that David Zaslav has. Uh, the best interests of the HBO brand. I think the HBO brand is still strong in many ways because of Casey Bloys and other executives there, but I, I don't think it's because of Warner Brothers Discovery. But if you wanted to bring new viewers to and just like that for the new season on Max, why not give them a taste of and just like that? It is totally such a different show. Put a season of and just like that on Netflix and let people come find season two. It's more of a guilty pleasure viewing. It's tonally very different. Um, and, and it serves a different age demographic. So I'm confused by it. Honestly, when I, when I saw the headline about this about two weeks ago, I initially misread it and thought it was and just like that. And it made way more sense to me. And then when right. I when I unpacked the actual headline I was reading, and it clearly said Sex in the City, I went, what? No, wait, 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 wait. That makes less sense. It does. They've also made the choice for it, and just like that, to uh, not have the Che Diaz character. The Che Diaz character isn't returning for this new season. Um, I, I wonder if they know why people watch their show. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to. I just know that this is yet another odd move. And, and on top of it, there are a few other moves going on in the Max App universe that make me wonder about HBO as an in-house brand and then the Max Originals brand uh, that came when they launched initially as HBO Max. They launched as HBO Max, and they they said some of our originals will be new originals that do not air on HBO. And so we're going to call those Max originals. And then Max became the name of the whole service. And now HBO is just one silo in Max, and Max originals are still there. But how many of them are left? Well... One of them is And Just Like That, which still to this day confuses me that it's not an HBO-branded show, but maybe they know no one will watch it linearly on HBO. HBO linearly, as a channel, skews a bit older and male, and while plenty of those people would watch And Just Like That, maybe they've done the math and they've said, no, that's a streaming title. Okay. Then we think about other Max streaming titles. And uh, Diane, you pointed something out when we were discussing this that, that made me a little worried. Because a lot of the Max streaming titles are perhaps appealing to the uh, female demographic, the gay demographic, the younger demographic, maybe the just non-straight white man in their 40s demographic. The Max Originals is where we get shows like Hacks, uh, where we had Rest in Peace, Our Flag Means Death. Uh, it, it, were Max Originals just sort of the ladies and queers, uh, or were Max Originals, we don't want to air these on HBO, and are they going to keep making Max Originals? Because I look at the list of Max Originals, which you can find in a helpful Wikipedia article, and I cannot help but notice how many of them, say in the current status column, ended. Right. It's a, a, a serious trend. But at this point, are they working to 
dilute the HBO brand, the ones that still exist? Can they be absorbed into HBO? I, I, my, my dream is they absorb Hacks into HBO. Hacks has always yes. just felt like an HBO comedy. Hacks is coming back for a third season. There are HB, uh, Max Originals coming back for, for third seasons. Um, uh, Sex Lies of College Girls is coming back for a third season. Uh, so is, I love that show. Uh, Clone High. Uh, Tokyo Vice is coming back for a second season. Completely forgot about that. Uh, but a lot of things are not. And this was underscored recently by the uh, very random cancellation announcement for Kaylee Cuoco's The Flight Attendant, which aired two seasons uh, on Max. It was one of the early Max originals. Uh, what's weird about this is the last season aired a year and a half ago, and I thought they'd already canceled it. Kaylee made a post on Instagram that had suggested that she thought it was ending. So I think that there was a, a suspicion that it was the case anyways. And maybe some some of this was delayed official news because of the strike negotiations, but it didn't really fall in that period. So it doesn't make sense. I do think the first season of The Flight Attendant was significantly better than the second. And so, you know, that decision makes sense in a way that some of the other, like, uh, canceling rap shit makes less sense to me. Yeah, I, yeah, I would I, I would say there, too. I, my uh, conspiracy theory brain spins around mm. uh, this randomly timed announcement and thinks uh, somebody inside Warner Brothers Discovery just made a decision about the future of the Max brand, and they're beginning to do some cleanup. And and is that just, hey, we're pivoting? They're already pivoting away from kids. They, they've ended almost all of the Max originals that were uh, kids and family focused. Uh, and, and maybe they're just focusing on what's working. And what's working are shows like Hacks, The Sex Lives of College Girls, things that skew uh, a little female and a little queer, but also just younger, and um, maybe uh, have newer voices that wouldn't hit instantly on HBO, whatever you want to call it. They're, they're comedic, but they're not uh, sitcom-y. Okay, yeah, maybe that's a new direction you're leaning into. But then you have, like, Tokyo Vice, and you have The Peacemaker, which is supposed to come back, although that's kind of tied up in the DC reboot. Uh, a show called Bookie? I don't even know what Bookie is, but Bookie's coming back, and I'm told it's a drama. Maybe I'll check it out. I think I, I still find it confusing. For me, The Sex Lives of College Girls is a clear inheritor of shows like Sex in the City and, like, Girls um, for a new generation uh, with a more diverse young cast and a, a queerer presence but i think that like there's a precedent of that being a sensation on hbo not just a success but like you know like a defining show of an era so i'm, I'm really think that uh casting these aside onto max and thinking they'll find their audience that way is not a good choice yeah, and I would love to understand the answer to this very specific question. Why not also put them on HBO? Because there has to be a reason why. But if you're trying to build up Max, and you're trying to make Max successful, wouldn't there be some benefit in having your Max originals air on HBO as a ad for Max? as a way to say, hey, if you like The Sex Lives of College Girls, it's a Max show, it's an HBO show, and it's on Max. Come watch more things like this 
on the Max app. It's what Paramount decided to do with Showtime, even though Showtime is like a husk of its former self. At least there's a thought process there. They renamed it Paramount Plus with Showtime. And on Paramount Plus with Showtime, the cable channel, you see Showtime shows and some Paramount Plus shows that are designed to make you go watch more things on the Paramount Plus app and stream. Why can't HBO feed into Max like that? Wouldn't that be beneficial? If Max is going to be a big uh, streamer hub for every kind of viewer, right? And you have kids that are coming in and they're going to look at their, they're looking for Looney Tunes and they see the sex lives of college girls, right? As Max branded. To me, it makes more sense to put something like that under the HBO brand and say, this is for adults. This is not you know, the general population that some Max content is. So, yeah, I, I, I find it confusing. Yeah, I, I do, too. And, and you know, the answer could be something as stupid as, well, it's two different divisions with two different budget lines. And so they each have mm -hmm. their own budgets. It really could be something as uh, disappointing as that. But if there is a strategic reason, I would just love to know, have they crunched the numbers and they go, actually, airing a, a repeat of an Avengers movie on HBO is a better financial win. It's not like you're selling ads against it. It's HBO. There are no ads. So, like, wh wh what is worth it about keeping these off of HBO? Great question. Well, if you're David Zaslov and you have the answer, you can email us, podcast at streamagain.com. We always love to hear from you, David. Put Carrie Bradshaw on the case. <laughs> But that is not the only mystery we're investigating in the news this week, because uh, we're, we're keeping an eye on ways to save you a little bit of money, dear listener, in a segment we're calling Bundle Watch. Bundle Watch, where we find bundles for you and then tell you why they don't make sense. So uh, in Bundle Watch this week, we're taking a look at uh, two bundles from wireless carriers, because that's where most of the bundles come from, and that's why they're bad ideas. Just do not give your wireless carrier the ability to bill you for Netflix. That is a bad idea. Unless you happen to be a Verizon customer who loves the programming on Stars with a Z, because Stars is being bundled with Netflix as an option for Verizon customers. And if you actually watch both of those streaming services, you will save something around $85 a year if you bundle them through your Verizon plan. But what I have to stress here is, who is watching Stars? What is on Stars? Is there really 12 months worth of programming on Stars? Diane, there is. I see you've raised your hand. Yeah. Tell me more about Stars. Stars made a very strategic pivot in 2020 and 2021 to make content for people of color and women and queer people. In many ways, it has some of that stuff we were just talking about, like on on Max, those shows that are getting canceled. There, you know, you've got Power and its many spinoffs. I think that this is a play here to get specifically um, women and black audiences onto Verizon. Interesting. Interesting angle there. What would this cost you? It would cost you $25.99 a month. Uh, but it, it is the Netflix premium tier. So you're getting the $22.99 a month Netflix tier and stars for just $3 more than the 
uh, standard premium Netflix price. And the key here is that is the premium Netflix tier. So you you need to be somebody who wants to pay for the most expensive Netflix. But if you are and you're a fan of stars, that's a great deal, I guess. I, math makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it pans out, especially if you're a new cord cutter, maybe, who is paying for stars as part of your cable. Right. Again, that's a very niche focus. I just like, if you are somehow the overlap of all those Venn diagram circles there, this is a good deal for you. But how many people is that overlap going to hit? I'm bitter and will never do this because uh, Star is, is where Minx went when Max dropped Minx. And it withered and died on stars, which did not surprise me because there's not enough on stars to get somebody who is not already watching those shows to sign up for it. Uh, I think that's true. Maybe this will get some people to sign up for stars, even if they're not engaging with it because they're like, huh, another three bucks. Sure, I'll check it out. Yeah, I think that's the argument from the stars perspective. I understand why stars wants to be in this bundle. It makes perfect sense for them. Hit yourself to to Netflix. That's a good idea. Uh, the the challenge is just the way that people have subscription fatigue now. I really struggle to imagine anyone anywhere going. Sure, I want to spend more on streaming for an unknown quantity of shows that I don't watch yet. I, that's a hard sell the right salesperson at the Verizon store is going to get you there. It's going to get right. some people there. Maybe not me, maybe not you, but I, I, I do think that it's going to sell. Well, fine. Maybe, maybe it will. And uh, if you are one of those lucky stars, uh, Verizon subscribers, let us know. Uh, but maybe you have a different wireless carrier. Well, we still have a bundle for you. If you're a T-Mobile user, you might get free Hulu. The Might is doing a lot of heavy lifting there uh, because this is a perk called Hulu on Us and it is available to people who have the Go 5G Next plan, whatever that means. I, I, I don't know. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but... Um... <laughs> the Go 5G Net pl- Next plan was I- installed in you in one of the COVID vaccinations, actually. You do have the plan. I've, I've got it already. Yeah, but, um, you know, you could get the ad version of hulu with that included only hulu with ads sure sure and i i think the true hulu the pure hulu is the hulu with ads i i'm a big believer oh, yeah, that's my hulu. In, in hulu with ads uh and that great if i i don't know how specific that plan requirement is is that a plan that no one has is an open question or is it a plan that you can upgrade to but the upgrade costs more than hulu with ads would cost you i don't know the answer to these questions that is for you to find out if you are a t-mobile customer i'm just here to let you know that there are so many great bundles and we cover them all the time on bundle watch fantastic news uh, and if you find an interesting bundle in the universe, tell us about it. Podcast at streamageddon.com. That is all the news we have time for this week because we need to hop on a plane and get in a time machine and go back to the south of France to meet a detective named Monsieur Spade. Yes, Monsieur Spade. Bonjour and uh, hello from France, where we've met up with Clive Owen, who stars in this uh, kind of delightful uh, sequel 
to the Maltese Falcon? This, this is how you pitched this to me, Diane. You said, have you watched Monsieur Spade? It's a sequel to the Maltese Falcon. And I then had to ask, did they do a prestige cable TV reboot of the Maltese Falcon that I missed? Or are you referring to the movie from the 1940s? And it was the latter. It's, uh, you know, one of the most celebrated films of, of classic Hollywood. Uh, and maybe this is a bit selfish of me because I think that this show is a little more niche. You know, AMC Plus is not the biggest streamer, but it is so right up my alley. It's filling the HBO's Perry Mason sized hole in my heart. Uh We've, we're only going to discuss the first episode here. So far, I'm on board. Uh, me too. It, it is a, a delightful show so far. Also uh, made by some people with some pretty good TV pedigree. I think that, you know, obviously going from a Humphrey Bogart, John Huston collaboration, there's really big shoes to fill here. Um Tom Fontana, who uh, created the show with Scott Frank. Um, you might know his work uh, creating St. Elsewhere, writing on Homicide Life on the Street, creating Oz, uh, you know, significant TV credits. Um, and Scott Frank, who um, is writing here, uh, also created Logan. Um, so, the, the, you know, the their experience. The Queen's Gambit, yeah. massive hit. Yeah. Yes. It's... It, interesting to to see these creators uh delve in a new work even if it weren't you know uh the hard-boiled detective stuff that i love i'd probably on be on board just because of those two yeah it, it is a fascinating pedigree i just keep imagining all these people said yes when they were told it films in the south of france that everyone went oh yeah oh tell me more how long <laughs> do we get to spend in the south of france uh and, and it is you know uh, anchored by clive owen and then the uh, rest of the cast is mostly french actors who you probably won't know but are all delightful and very good and what i i like is if you're afraid of subtitles and you're like oh no this sounds like it's all going to be subtitled in french uh, one of the key elements here is Sam Spade does not speak great French. He speaks French. He's been there a while, but but they often switch to English with him. And that makes it a much breezier watch if you're worried about the international element. The only times that I've had difficulty understanding what was happening is because I love to watch things with the subtitles on. And sometimes my subtitles will cover the French subtitle saying, he speaks in French. And I'm like, stop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some subtitle issues may appear for you, but that that is based on your uh, platform minor. of choice. You can adjust for that. Uh, you can adjust, yeah. Yeah, I did I did not have those issues on my platform, but I have with other shows, so I, I know the pain well. The, the uh, setup is a, a delightfully low stakes in a lot of ways, and I say that with love because one of my complaints that you have heard many times when we talk about Marvel is that the stakes for a lot of these new shows have gotten absurd. Uh, I feel this way mm -hmm. a little bit about the show we talked about last week, uh, Death and Other Details, where there is a simple mystery at the center, but they have to layer on a whole bunch of other stakes and mysteries to make it seem like there's really high stakes. And I kind of want to say, what? There's a murder. Isn't the murder high stakes enough? 
And here's a show where the stakes are basically Sam Spade went and retired in the south of France and he worked out some uh, tricky things when he got there and thought it was all set and thought he was going to live a quiet life uh, with a lot of money, it seems, in the south of France. But then that guy who he tried to get rid of when he first got there comes back. And now he's got to deal with that. That's it. That's the set. Yeah. I love I mean, it. I love it too. And there is some, you know, enjoyment of the South of France. Like if, if you, it takes place in the sixties too, mostly. So, uh, you know, if you enjoy, uh, classic Rolls Royces, beautiful countrysides, people sipping what appears to be delicious wine, that is also part of the appeal for me. Um, the way that it's shot, it, it's really beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's gorgeous. It, it's a gorgeous show. I do think, uh, if you haven't seen the Maltese Falcon, that's okay. You can still get the plot. Uh, it does. It might increase your enjoyment if you have seen the Maltese Falcon, or it could be one of those things where you're like, nothing will ever be the Maltese Falcon. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, a little bit of trickiness there because it is such an acclaimed work that they're spinning off here into this new show. Um, but because of the change in location, there's really only one character from the film who's returned here. It still has some of that Dashiell Hammett style to the dialogue. And Spade is the same character. But beyond that, it really feels like something entirely new. And I think that is a very strong choice. If they had tried to make, you know, the Maltese Falcon, the sequel, and it takes place in 1942, and it's Spade just continuing with that same story with the same cast of characters, I think that it would be uh, a lot harder to fill those shoes. Yeah, I think that's really a good point. Sam Spade has aged. He's he's slowed down. It's a different, he, you know, same Sam Spade, but different person in some ways. And that's because of time and because of, uh, you know, retirement, essentially. He's retired in the south of France. Yeah. And um, I was like a little unsure, even though I'm a big Clive Owen fan, I, I was a little unsure just because that's, again, just such huge shoes to fill. But um he manages to capture this sort of um, hangdog indifference that Humphrey Bogart has, um, which is really sort of uh, he uses uh, things like cigarettes and alcohol to sort of mask and keep down all of his emotions as a character. You know, the the classic hyper masculine detective character. Um, but we see because he is older now, he's dealing with emphysema he's uh you know concerned about his health he wants to keep moving around um you know i think at, at one point he's getting like a, a rectal exam is yeah, that he's getting like a prostate exam i think <laughs> yes a prostate exam um you know he's he's dealing with the realities of his body in a new way so he doesn't have those sort of um metaphorical crutches to cover up so you actually have to see him dealing with his emotions in a way that you know uh one only asked bogart to do very sparingly right so in that way it's the same character but it's a very new take on it which i think is successful yeah so that, far that got me hooked I, we, again we I, we've only watched the pilot there are going to be six episodes total uh, but i am ready to watch all six of them it runs through february 18th 
on AMC Plus. And uh, I, yeah, there's something about it doesn't feel like it's taking more time uh, than it, it, it's not asking more of me as a viewer than it should. It knows what it wants to do, and it seems very confident in, I need this much time to do it, come along for the ride with me, we're not going to really waste any of it. And, and that, at least this early in the season, I draw as a contrast to Death and Other Details that we talked about last week, which three episodes in left me feeling like they were spinning their wheels a bit trying to pad out the runtime of a 10-episode order. And this feels much more focused. Uh, and again, only one episode in. They've just set up the the main uh, mystery, which basically involves a young girl from the Maltese Falcon who uh, Sam Spade brought back to France. She uh, has been living in uh, like a convent, like an orphanage with nuns, at, while he lives in the town, kind of uh, leaving her money, things like that. It seems like he is trying to be a little bit of a protector for her, but he is not directly involved anymore until this... Uh, former uh, shadow from her life, let's say, who he had gotten rid of when he came to France, comes back. He's been in the war in Algeria, which is a a French history thing. Uh, And when he comes back, all hell sort of begins to break loose. And at the end of the pilot, the nuns at this uh, orphanage, at this convent, are all brutally murdered. And Sam Spade, now worried for both his own safety and the safety of this young girl he's taken kind of as his responsibility ever since the Maltese Falcon, uh, now they're in jeopardy. Yeah, I think um, a a trope of this kind of detective and also of uh, Sam Spade specifically is having anyone who comes close to you emotionally is then at risk of danger. And it seems that maybe this like carefree way of life that is in this small town in France, uh, he has put at risk by um, bringing the daughter of Bridget O'Shaughnessy Mm -hmm. back there. And and, um, so I think that that, gives the show a lot of stakes that don't feel artificial they they feel earned by the end of the episode that you know he um is not a father to this girl but he cares for her in a paternal way and that he had um developed um, mostly positive interactions and relationships with the people of this town even though he is still an outsider and so he has put them all in danger and so now he has to solve this before more of them are killed yeah which is i i love those stakes they are uh not the world is going to end they are human they are interpersonal they are about people he has grown to be affectionate for as well as his own health and well-being in life it is uh delightfully uh focused on the people Mm -hmm. versus these bigger machinations. Nobody is going to, like, destroy the town or take over France. Uh, Instead, you know, for for the kind of worldly stakes, they they lean on some stuff that would never have been in the, the Maltese Falcon, the history of, like, the Nazi occupation of France. Part of why... Uh, Sam Spade winds up living in this town and getting involved with some of the townspeople and ultimately taking some of the shadier, more extortion-y ones and getting them out of the picture uh, is because there were 
collaborators, you know, French Nazi collaborators who were spouses or family members of the people in the town. And that is a secret that in this era, when they flash back to the, the 40s or the, the early 50s, even into the early 60s, that that would destroy your reputation in this small French town. You would be persona non grata if, if it was known that you had collaborated uh, during the war. And, and that is... Uh, just I, I love that because that is big picture that is worldly but it is about the people and it's a kind of um uh, threat that is existential but not mortal you know what i mean yeah i do and also it gives him a unique position as the outsider coming into this town you know where he it's not a threat to him in the same way and that the, the the danger again here is is him becoming close to people and people becoming close to him, which really puts him at the center of the world and yet outside it uh, is a really good lens for me as an American viewer who, you know, um, my World War II history is decent uh, when it comes to like France and Algeria. I definitely have a lot to learn. Um, so I, I'm finding that really interesting. Yeah, me too. And, and and it's a nice color to the the palette they're they're kind of painting with. Uh and all of that all of that is it, it is sort of I get the word I would use is sort of a painterly show. It feels like I'm watching something sort of like a watercolor being painted in front of me, and it is a violent bloody watercolor in some situations, but it has a a, a, a serenity to it. There's something so peaceful about the setting and about the era. Uh, something so retro about it that it does feel a little meditative, even when it is a hard-boiled detective murder mystery. Agreed. And I'm curious about some of the sort of B.C. plots with the other people in the town, if those are going to become central to this main mystery, or if we're just seeing sort of how this town plays out. It's a sort of plotting that you don't always get in, like, uh a tight detective series. There's not a lot of space for something like that on um, something like death and other details. But I think that with this pacing so far, it's working for me. I could see a point where that could be a trap to fall into if, you know, they don't really go anywhere. Eventually, I think I want this central mystery to keep building. Yeah, me too. And and at the very least, the pilot does a very good job of that because it builds to these climactic murders, uh, which mm. both make perfect sense in the mystery genre you're in. You're waiting for something like that to happen. But uh, the way it executes, let's say, is uh, still a twist, still feels like a surprise. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, they it does kind of look like a Caravaggio. Oh, oh, I, I love dropping some art history references here. This is the most highbrow review we have ever done. <laughs> and Clive Owen's abs, wow. <laughs> oh, so much to love. Clive Owen nude swimming in his gorgeous South of France swimming pool when a young man who wants to paint, speaking of painting, wants to paint on the estate, uh, walks up and Clive Owen just fully gets out of that pool. And you go, sure. You want to turn the camera around? It's fine. You can turn the camera around. You can turn the camera around, Canal Plus. Uh, yeah, we're in you, France. Yeah, you can turn the camera around, Canal Plus. 
Uh, I'm a little suspicious of that painter boy, by the way. Oh, me too. Who rolls up to your gorgeous estate and says, well, you know, my, my mama used to paint by the, the barn house. I, I do love um, in that scene that touches on some of the humor of the show. Um, Clive mm. Owen just, you know, nonchalantly is like, yes, that, that barn burned down. You can paint over there. I, I, to me, that show, that was a great um, pairing with uh, the introduction of John Hamm's character on this season yes. of Mad Men, who's At like, Fargo. Uh, oh yeah, geez. The, the new season <laughs> of Mad Men. Stop the presses. No, John Hamm on the new season of Fargo, um, who is nude in the hot tub when the FBI yeah. agents approach him, you know, and just uh, with a similar confidence in saying, you know, uh, I will emerge as my full self yes uh, oh. and I, I cannot wait to get more of clive owen's full self on monstro spade <laughs> streaming in america on amc plus uh you can find it elsewhere overseas i'm told but that is all the time we have to spend in the south of france today it breaks my heart to say we have to get on a plane and fly back to reality au revoir au revoir and until next week Abiento, dear listener. You can email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. Until then, uh, I don't know how to say it in French. I thought about it for a second. Just. Uh, Montanal. <laughs> Montanal streaming! That's definitely wrong. Yeah, I think that might be now streaming. Now streaming. <laughs> well, that could be. <laughs> you know, that works. Yeah. Always now streaming. <laughs>